14. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 245 of 40 Going On 14. I am Mike. I am Patrick. I'm Joel. And I'm Josh. And this week we're going to be talking about 310 to Yuma. Yes, that's right. Uh, it's a classic based on Elmore Leonard's first published short story. Excellent idea. And yeah, it was released in 1957. And totally agree. Mike, you can wait until I'm done talking to agree with me. <laughs> now, if people haven't seen the original, <clears throat> that's going to fly way <laughs> over their heads. Shame. So that only works for people who've seen a Western from 1957, which at least is U3. You'd think they would have gotten it, though, right? I just thought you were being a dick. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're not wrong. He was being the town drunk. He is kind of the drunk in our town. You're not wrong. <laughs> that was a that was a great line, though. We just stop. I stop talking to agree with me. <laughs> I like that character. I like. Okay. Anyway, let's before we get into that. But we are doing. Uh, what? No, God, not that one. I read too low. Not 420. The Yumville. <laughs> <laughs> it worked. I didn't even finally. Do it. Only took 200 and something episodes of the show notes for that to finally kick in. If you like 200 and something episodes, you can find those and plenty more on the Podcast Collective. Finally got a good one. <laughs> well, you'll find such shows as No Hope for Humanity, Joel's Own, The Sunshine Happy Pants Hour, The Internet with Scott the Pool Boy, Mint and Boxcast, and of course, The Rad Dad Radio Hour. <laughs> Why doesn't Pat help with that anymore? It's kind of, you know, it started off, it was I was the only one doing it, and he's just kind of slowly just taken over it. Well, and then you just stopped doing it. Well, yeah. Joel made it weird. Because I used to do it on my own, and now, you know, we used to do it together, and now it's like, it's on you. And That, taken out of context, would be, anyway. Um, accurate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, if you're looking for our older stuff, we're on iTunes, Blueberry, Stitcher, TalkShoe, Podverse FM, NoonFM.com. And if you want to call us, 708-NOW-RAP, 708-669-9727, and uh, Geek Life Radio, 12 noon on Saturdays. We Ta-da. don't have any voicemails, I bet. <laughs> it's been quite the week. It's, uh, yeah. Well, we don't anyway, even if we do. Okay, we actually don't have any. Well, we had we had some we had some communication on Facebook this week. Yeah, Facebook was a light conversation. It was lit, as the ah. kids say. Oh. Yeah, did you say? I shouldn't say that. You, you just did. But I shouldn't. <laughs> so, <laughs> God damn it! You guys messed my brain up. Um, so what we were talking about? Uh, who are we talking to? Karen uh, was begging us for the password to get into uh, the safe, safe house. house. See, I'd tell her, but I cannot be trusted because I've been known to give out fake passwords. That's what you should have done. I was expecting you to do it. Oh, yeah. I see. That's the thing is I like Karen enough to let her know that you cannot trust any password I give. <laughs> and after my first experience at the uh, safe house, no one now. No. I was going to say, Mike can tell you that you cannot trust any passwords <laughs> that I Josh give. gives me. Yes. <laughs> The kumquat walks alone. Wait, what? Why am I in a dress now? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I think I got you with a very uh, legitimate sounding one. Yeah, you did. It wasn't it wasn't that ridiculous. It was I mean, it was one of those where I'm like plausible. Yeah, because it was a movie reference. Yeah. And I went in there, said it, and they're like, we don't know what you're talking about. And for a brief moment, I was like, wait, what? Fuck. <laughs> As I'm watching in the camera, dance puppets. <laughs> yeah, that was me and Will going in there. We had to put on hula skirts, coconut bras, and dance to get in. And when we finally did make it into the bar, 
we got a standing ovation. So that was kind of worth it. Yeah, because I don't think you guys knew you were on camera for all of us. Did not know that. <laughs> that <was laughs> the coconut bronze skirts were not even something that they asked you to do. No, we had them with us. Yeah, that's the weird part. You don't go traveling with a coconut bra? I do now. See? I was just one step ahead of you. Swordfish. That's called the baloo. In some countries. Shane! (laughs) (laughs) On that note, I think it's about that time. Yes, it is. This week in... Music. Movies. And TV. Wrong movie. You know, part of me is really hoping that you did watch Shane. You weren't? Shane! All right, so we're going with August 7th, 1957, the release of the original 310 to Yuma. A long time ago. It was a few days ago, that's for sure. So, uh, music, everybody dance. The number one song in the land was Let Me Be Your Teddy Bear by the King, Elvis Presley. There's very few Elvis Presley songs that I don't enjoy. In the ghetto? No, don't enjoy in the ghetto. Oh, I love in the ghetto. <laughs> we know. That's why. I, <laughs> that's why I had to bring it up. The, teddy bear the best. The best one was when we were playing charades, and you put. Here we go. Here we go. Yeah, playing charades. What's your song in the ghetto? How the hell do you do charades in the ghetto? Please don't. Yeah, that's on my record now. So. <laughs> Uh, born Neil Kirby McMillan Jr. on August 2nd, Mojo Nixon is an American psychobilly musician. He has officially retired from playing live and recording, though he does still host several radio shows on Sirius Satellite Radio and has come out of retirement for one-time events. He paired with Skid Roper in the early 1980s in San Diego, and they released their first album in 1985 called Mojo Nixon and Skid Roper. Their third album, 1987's Bodacious, featured the song Elvis is Everywhere, which is probably his best-known song. Nixon has declared his personal religious trinity was Presley, Foghorn Leghorn, and Otis Campbell. No big surprise here. I love Mojo Nixon. I'm I, not like overly familiar <clears throat> with him. I know some of his stuff. If you ain't got Mojo Nixon, then you could use some fixin'. Yeah, that's really the only reason a lot of people know him. It's because he yeah. was in the Punk Rock Girl <laughs> Punk Rock song. Girl. My favorite song from him, he does a cover of uh, Girlfriend in a Coma. Which is an interesting cover. <laughs> Especially for a Psycho Billy All right, who's the anti-Elvis? Mojo Nixon. No, it's in the song. Elvis is everywhere. Oh, shit. No I, one? There's. Wow. N- I, I doubt that you know this. I think you just looked it up. No, I know this. Pat remembers things. Yeah, I think I'm the least familiar with Mojo Nixon. Probably, if not for the unusual name, I wouldn't know who it was at all. Michael J. Fox is the anti-Elvis. Yeah, got to go with that. All right, so Richie Raymore. I'm sorry, Richie Ramone. <laughs> <laughs> Richie <laughs> there isn't even a Y in the, in the name, Joel. Rudy's cousin. Uh, Richie Ramone, <laughs> actual name Richard Reinhardt, was an American rock drummer of for the Ramones. He was born in Passaic, New Jersey on August 11th. That's like the shortest sentence you have in this whole thing, and you screwed it up twice. I've been doing so well. <laughs> you got through the entire Mojo Nixon paragraph with no problem. <laughs> Richie Raymore. That was great. <laughs> Uh, now I want to, never mind. Anyway, Dennis Arnold Drew, born August 8th, is the keyboardist for 10,000 Maniacs. He has been with the band since its inception in 1981, and along with Steve Gustafson, good lord, see, now you broke me, are the only two remaining founding members of the band. I got bad yep. news for you. Not even <laughs> yep. Natalie Merchant. You've been broke for a while. Yep. Who was I'm the original not. singer? Natalie Merchant. 
Mm-hmm. Oh, what happened to Nail? Oh, she quit? She's been solo for years. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I thought she just jumped on and off once in a while. No, she's gone. Well, okay. I mean, he's not wrong. She didn't start it, and she's not with it now, so, you know, she has kind of jumped on and off. Okay. Yeah, that's, I guess so. She's no Richie Ray Moore, though. <laughs> well, who is? <laughs> Nobody. Because he doesn't exist. <laughs> I'm sure there's somebody somewhere named Richie Ray Moore. Okay, moving on to movies. The top movies on the land were Band of Angels, Reform School, yeah, Reform oh School <laughs> Girls, jeez, and the acronym of the week, TPATP, which I'm pretty sure is Tijuana Prostitutes and the Prostate. <laughs> I've seen that movie. <laughs> Tab 72? <laughs> no, that is uh, The Pride and the Passion. Of the Christ. That's what I said, right? Yeah, you were close. Almost, almost got it. And he said the top movies on the land, so you know. Did I? About the sea and army, but you know. And reform school girls. Is that, is that worse somehow than Richie Raymore? Yeah, I was say, Shut up, Richie Raymore. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, reform school. Actually, it should be reform school girl. Oh, yeah. it's not the one. Oh, I, yeah, because yeah, that one was made in 1986 and had Wendy O. Williams in it. Right. Yeah, that's the one I was thinking it was, but I didn't even really like <laughs> logically think that out. So. Yeah, this one had Gloria Castillo in it. Okay. Probably not as salacious. Well, for 1957, yeah. Yeah. Richie Ray Moore was awesome in that movie. All right, moving on. Oliver Hardy of Laurel and Hardy fame died on August 7th of cerebral venous sinus thrombosis. Which is a fancy way of saying a blood clot in the brain. Uh, I've been absorbed, you idiot. Hmm? It's another fine mess you've gotten me into. (laughs) I heard that Richie Ray Moore is going to star in the remake of Shane. Oh, God. Here we go. Born on August 1st. Jane! <laughs> Brad Stephen Taylor Negron was an American actor, comedian, painter, and playwright. He was a character actor in comedies for decades, including television appearances. He Jane! was? Is Taylor Negron dead? Yeah. I did not know that. He really? died about six years ago, I think. Oh. Hmm. Oh, that's right. And he was uh, in one of our favorite movies. I think it was only two years ago. Yeah, it might have been sooner than that. I mean, it was... It, it wasn't recent, but it wasn't like, you know, 10 years ago. I know I'm looking that. it up because I, I remember this now. 2015. Um, January 15, yeah. <clears throat> of yeah. liver cancer. That sucks. Uh, he was very, very dry humor, but, but funny. Yeah, he was like in that Stephen Wright type of humor. Mm-hmm. He generally played a-holes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, Melanie Griffith was born on August 9th of this week. I figure we all know who she is. I didn't need to list her resume. Yeah, kind of like, that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> all right. <clears throat> TV. The top shows in the land were The Jack Parr Tonight Show, The Gay Cavalier, The New Adventures of Charlie Chan, and Richard Diamond, Private Detective. Definitely a different time. Yeah. Dick Diamond. <laughs> Fred Garvin, male prostitute. Dick Diamond, Private Dick. That's all that that reminds me of. Who's... <laughs> really... Okay, yeah. I'm going to regret don't, don't this. Go down, yeah, don't go down that. I'm yeah, going to regret this. Oh, well, no, here we go. TV series. Actually, you, you Google the Gay Cavalier, you actually get the TV series. Oh. You're lucky. I know, right? Oh, wait, Wouldn't hey. if you used Bing. <laughs> <laughs> Josh was hoping it was going to be like a picture of LeBron James, the, the Gay Cavalier, Cleveland yeah. Cavaliers. Shane! Uh, sorry, sorry. I, I should have thought about doing a sports joke. I didn't, yeah. I didn't think that through. There you go. Uh, so Nancy Glass 
An American television and radio host, writer, and producer was born on August 8th. She is a titan of the news industry and a six-time Emmy Award-winning television host, writer, and producer. Her Emmys have been giving been given for writing, producing, and hosting on air. That I don't know a, what's going on. With that was a great sentence there, Pat. That was what? A, that, there's nothing wrong with any of those sentences. I just... He's doing better than me, so... My, mildly redundant. What else? I mean, what did what did she do? Nancy Glass. Okay, yeah. Look look her up and tell me what you're going to... You know, there's, there's like 87 credits to her name. Yeah, she, okay, Cavalier. See? There you go. I, I don't know. I just made that up. I don't know why you never, you know, never trust what I write in these things. That she was in the Gay Cavalier? No, I, she, not in the, I didn't write that. <laughs> I just pulled it out of my ass. All right, so moving on. American <laughs> Bandstand premiered on ABC on August 5th. Bandstand. We're going and such. American <laughs> Bandstand. And such got me. I'm not sure why. Was, so here we go. How long was American Bandstand on the air? Oh, God. Uh, I, uh, if you can give, just give years, me. Someone. No, don't no. give me a date. Give me, the, give me the year you think it, it ended. Oh, God. I don't know. Uh, 2012. 12, 1999 if I. Yeah. I'm going to say 2012. 2012. 99. $1. <laughs> if it's $2, I'm going to shit. You are right. It is $2. No, uh, 1952 to 1989. Oh. Wow. I was way off. Pat wins. I was over two, though. Yeah, I was going to say $1 <laughs> technically one of my Price is Right rules. Yep. Fuck that. <laughs> All right, so Laura Johnson was born on August 1st. She's an American actress known for playing Terry Hartford in the primetime soap opera Falcon Crest from 1983 to 1986. Hmm. My parents were obsessed with Falcon Crest. Yeah, my mom watched that one, too. Every time I hear the name, I think about toothpaste. Jane! <laughs> no, not in <laughs> Richie Ray Moore's version. Moving on to sports. Please. On August 1st, Semi-pro baseball player Glenn Gorbus threw a regulation baseball a still record 445 feet 10 inches. That is uh, for your own. It's a football field and, and another third yeah. of a football field. Jeez. That is, yeah. That is a long way to throw a ball. God. Yeah. Take that, Cricket. <laughs> oh, <God>. Okay. <laughs> Didn't realize Cricket was contending for that. but. And you know who caught that ball at the other end? Richie, Richie Ray Moore. <laughs> I knew he was real. <laughs> and on August 4th, Juan Manuel Fangio, driving for Maserati, wins the Formula One German Grand Prix, clinching his record fifth World Drivers Championship, including his fourth consecutive championship. And that is the end of the tweet. I understand. I love watching F1 races. It's, they're very, very talented. Like the, Taking those hairpin turns at like, you know, 50 miles an hour. It looks like they're going about 20 because they've been going 210 the rest of the time. Yeah, they're and and the the technology in the cars is amazing nowadays. There's a great video I just watched the other day of um I can't remember who it was, some NBA player like six foot ten trying to fit into a Formula One car. Oh my god, his head is just sticking way up past. (laughs) You're not going to cross the bridge, man. He couldn't even get the steering wheel in. (laughs) When they finally took the picture, he's just holding the steering wheel in his hands. Oh, God. Yeah, have you ever seen a steering wheel for an F1 racer? Yeah, man. It's like one of the most technologically advanced pieces of equipment out there. So many buttons. I know. It's crazy. Like, you're, it's like, you're driving a car. How many buttons do you need? And these like things, the Speed Racer car? Yeah. It, it, it's, it, they're literally just like the, the Speed Racer car. I mean, it's 
they they control so much stuff because it's not like they can lean over and change the radio or anything. Right. But uh, yeah, you got to have that on the steering wheel. Oh yeah, and the cup holder. Cup holder here. But yeah, so here you go, Joel. I'll send you a, a the image search of. Oh, that's what I'm doing it right now. So don't yeah. worry about it. I'm about to paste it. In no, the I chat. just I just did it. Um, so yeah, that was uh, the twee, as we like to call it behind the scenes. Jeebus. I know, right? Looks like a gaming keypad it, mixed yeah. with a uh, mixing board. Well, and then you have these these video games that are straight up F1 simulators. They're not they're not games. I I bought one once because like oh F1 racing. I love F1 racing. And I'm like this is real. <laughs> this is too realistic. I can't. Now my dad, he was really good at it. Which I think there's another one of those things like you know how you find shit out about your parents later on. I mean like 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 he's not really your dad and shit like that. Wait, I've said. Never mind. Lead us out, keyboard Joel. Shane. Um. So three ten to Yuma. You know, when we decided on this topic, I, I was only a little excited about it. it was basically because I'm such a huge Elmore Leonard fan. But you know, we'd done westerns before, so uh, I wasn't exactly dragging my feet to watch this one. But I, I think I was really happy we chose this as a topic. Same here. It was I. I realize how much I like westerns again. We kind of do that. We'll go cyclical. We'll have like the last one that I remember was um, Magnificent Seven. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, and it was just like you know westerns. I mean, there's just this awesome little genre of movies that is just about a, a bunch of manly men. Yeah, for lack of a better way to put it. I yeah, mean, I mean, no, it's just. Yeah. I mean, it's like there, there's not a whole lot of lot of wimps, you know, riding horseback through the old west shooting people. In a lot of ways, back in the 50s and 60s, these were the Marvel movies of their day. Oh, yep. completely. Yeah. These, I mean, we'll think about it. It's almost the same transition because think about the all the Westerns that came out and all the Western TV shows that popped up right after it. Oh, shit. Yeah. That's all That's all there was, it seemed like. Yeah. So, um, 310 to Yuma. It's a 1957 Western film starring Glenn Ford and Van Helfen. Uh, and directed by Delmer Davies. The film was based on a 1953 short story by Elmore Leonard, and is about a drought-impoverished rancher who takes on the risky job of taking a notorious outlaw to justice. Uh, in 2012, the 57 version was selected for preservation in the United States Film Registry in the Library of Congress as being culturally, historically, or aesthetically... Aesthetically. Yes, that too. Significant. Yeah, and I mentioned it at the top of the show, but it is also interesting that it was Elmore Leonard's first major published work. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, it was. Uh, if you go to his IMDb page, it's before any of his novels, and it's at the top of the list of his short stories. Oh, very cool. So this one is directed by Delmer Davies, uh, who has done such movies as Dark Passage, uh, An Affair to Remember. He wrote the screenplay for that. Um, sorry. And uh, he's he he's a heavyweight. Of the old fifty-one different writing credits, directing credits, thirty different ones, ranging from to the Victor Dark Passage. You know, he's he's directed everybody from Lauren Bacall to uh, Humphrey Bogart. <laughs> what? I just had an Arrested Development flashback when you said that, because uh, the way you said it, all I heard was Bacall, Bacall. <laughs> You've been Sorry. binging too much. I have been. <clears throat> yeah, uh, but yeah, uh, you know, he, um, uh, old school, amazing director. Writing credits, uh, Halstead Wells, 
was a writer of this one that picked it up um, and turned it into the screenplay. Uh, known for 310 to Yuma and Mannix. Ah, uh, cop show. Yes. Uh, right there, just with two credits, that's a pretty impressive resume, as far as I'm concerned. Oh, yeah. Well, and he also did um, a bunch of episodes of Night Gallery. That's another classic. Yeah. yeah. Seriously. I'm still on board. Yep. And then, of course, Elmore Leonard wrote the story. Yeah, and <clears throat> I think one of the reasons why I, I know I uh, gush about how awesome Elmore Leonard is, but it, it's more than... You could have anybody who sets up a situation where a bunch of people are pointing guns at each other. That's not at the heart of an Elmore Leonard story. At the heart of an Elmore Leonard story is there's one or more interesting characters who at some point uh, engage in a battle of wills. And yes, there are almost always firearms involved, but the mental battle, the clash of personalities, is the source of the drama, not the guns, usually. And that was very much evident in this movie. For sure. So yeah, so this starred Glenn Ford as Ben Wade, the criminal. And this was kind of a weird thing because up until this point, Glenn Ford was always kind of like the family guy. You know, he he was the dad in the movie version of The Courtship of Eddie's Father. You know, played Pa Kent in Superman. And can we just say how badass he looked? The the costuming, his portrayal of the character, his swagger, his everything about him. Really helped. Yeah, just he just oozed like this kind of he was very charismatic as the quote unquote bad guy. Yeah, and he was menacing without actually committing uh, so many overt acts of violence. It was, it was just the way, the way he carried himself. Mm-hmm. He carried himself with it. He had the Western swagger and he he was not violent on instinct. He was violent on reaction. Yeah, and it always seemed to me that his Ben Wade was more amused by the situation he was in. He was just like, "I'm. this is different. I'm going to see how this plays out. I know I'm getting out of this, but let's go along for the ride for a couple of hours. Oh, yeah. That was his, you're right, that was his complete attitude. I mean, he even said that out loud. It's like, you know, you know they're going to come and get me. You know, it's just a matter of time. You know, whenever you want to leave, it's cool because you know how this is going to end. But yeah, so this starred him and Van Heflin as Dan Evans, uh, known for, as Joel said, that was a, your cue, Joel. Shane! Right. I was say, the one time you're supposed to say, you drop the ball. <laughs> I, was, I was like, what, That's are we, our Joel. what are we talking about? I was so confused. <laughs> Shane, he also played Athos in uh, The Three Musketeers in the 1948 version and uh, was in Stagecoach. I. Uh, Another one, he actually won, oh, we'll get into this in the trivia, but he won some awards for this role also as Dan Evans. Uh, Felicia Farr as Emmy. Rare. Yeah, I think Indeed. all of us were, were yeah. Very, very attractive woman. Yeah, so that's. <laughs> and she that. knew she knew how to pour a drink. <laughs> Dude, did you no, like she didn't. That? She <laughs> never stopped pouring drinks. That's the thing. She just skipped walking. Everybody got like a half shot. Like, mink, 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 mink. But the thing is, she went like six times up and down the bar. That was the thing. She just kept doing her lines, pouring drinks, pouring a drink, saying a line, pouring a drink, saying a line. And then kissing Glenn Ford. And then they went and did it and came out from behind the beaded curtain. And then she poured some more drinks. Yes. No, she didn't. They what? had sex. So... <laughs> Leora Dana as uh, Miss Alice Evans, a little bit more matronly, but um, she has Dan's been his wife. Yeah, his wife. Uh, she was in Tora Tora Tora, which I, I love. Um, was also in Joel like this, and in 1983, Amityville 3D. Oh boy! Yeah, that was her. 
second to the last uh, movie. Henry Jones as Alex Potter, the town drunk. He's been in a lot of things. Oh yeah, uh, he's been a lot. Of, he's one of those bad uh, background guys. He's a hey, it's that guy. Yeah. Ah, oh, that guy. Yeah, he was a bike salesman in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. That's a good one too. It's kind of a weird scene all around. Uh, Charlie Prince was played by Richard Jekyll. Yeah, so that's right. Yeah. Uh, he, Dirty Dozen, he was in that. He was also in Airplane 2, the sequel. Yeah, he was straight out of, like, stock casting for Tough Guy. Yeah. But the thing is, with his character, he was, I mean, he was tough, but I didn't, there was no, he was tough, but there was no character. You know what I mean? He didn't stand out. Yeah. I mean, if you had just, if you had cast him as thug number one, it would have been the same. See, I don't know I agree with that, because I think he did a lot with his expressions uh, for the fact that he didn't have a whole lot of lines. Okay. Well, we'll get to that after we'll finish up the cast. And Robert yeah. er, Robert M. Hart as Mr. Butterfield. Uh, <laughs> Malcolm Tucker, he was uh, on the An- Andy Griffith show. Oh, yeah. really? Yeah. What was, who do you play? Malcolm Tucker. I don't know that name. No? That's odd. Uh, he I've was also... A ton of Andy Griffith shows. Yeah, uh, he was that. also in The Edge of Night and uh, played... Gerga in the TV series Greatest Heroes of the Bible, 1978. Yeah, I don't know who Gerga is. Uh, Sheridan Comrade as Bob Moons, the stage driver's brother. George Mitchell as the bartender. Robert Elstein as Ernie Collins. Ford Rainey as Bisbee Marshall. And correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, I swear I heard um, the sergeant from MASH in there. I didn't see him. Sergeant from MASH? Yeah, yeah, I, I didn't see him. All right. Wait, who are we talking about? The yeah. uh, the older guy from Ash, the guy in charge. Colonel Potter. Yeah, I swear I heard Co- Colonel Potter's voice. He's a in, sergeant. Well, no, Cur- oh, okay, I'm wrong on that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was very confused there. So, but anyway, so some trivia. The following year, 310 to Yuma was nominated for the British Academy of Film and Television Arts Award for Best Film and the Laurel Award for Top Male Action Star, which went to Van Heflin. Hmm. So that's pretty cool. Uh, that is cool, especially considering while I love Van Heflin's uh, performance, getting awards when you're overshadowed by Glenn Ford, yeah. pretty impressive. Yeah, that's ex- that, is, uh, that is pretty good, especially overseas. And although most Westerns at the time were being produced in color, Delmer Davies and Charles Lawton Jr. opted to shoot this one in black and white. They used red filters on the lenses to give the landscape an even more starkly parched look uh, to make the story look more drought-like. Hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. So, next up, I don't know why I put this in there. Found it interesting. Average shot length was 6.4 seconds, and the median shot length was 6.6 seconds. I didn't realize there were that many cuts. Yeah, it didn't feel Good that Good editing, then I didn't realize it. Well, And I think that's one of the things, is normally if you watch a Western from the 50s, if you, there are spots where it's like, okay, they're lingering because it's still kind of cool to show a wide shot of the desert. This one felt, pacing-wise, a little bit more like a modern movie. It did. I think it's because of those. It's not the ultra-quick cuts of the last 20 years, but it felt more like something from the 80s than something from the 50s. It definitely didn't feel laborious at any point. It, no, and that's one of the things that happens with some of these older ones. And we've, when we we tend to call it that 70s pacing. Uh-huh. This does not have that. 
You know, you, no. it, it keeps the cuts going fast enough. I mean, there is some of the, like you said, Josh, the pa- pan across the desert, you know, to show the glory of where they're at. Or in this case, it's to show the fact that the whole place is stuck in a drought. But none of it was, all right, we get that they're in the West. You know, like, yeah. Like the and, and I think that was odd for the time because usually a lot of those Westerns, like I said, they're still playing off the novelty of, hey, we can film this. You can see this. Yeah, SpectraVision. Look at the bushes in color. All right. Uh, the theme song is sung by Frankie Lane, well known for singing theme songs to westerns and having such sincerity in his voice while doing so. Uh, it was also because of this that we uh, heard him sing the theme song to Blazing Saddles, 1974. And uh, the inside joke on that one is that Lane sang his heart out and did an amazing job on it, but never realizing that the lyrics were a spoof on westerns. Yeah, this was definitely in the time where you could just make a song around the title. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of giggling at the theme song. Oh, it's <laughs> the 310 to Yuma. It wasn't that. It was more of a love ballady kind of thing. How, how'd it go? Take the 310 to Yuma. Don't get killed by a puma. <laughs> <laughs> that was it. That was it. A puma. I'm actually pretty sure I had the tune right. I just you, added you the did. bit about the Puma. <laughs> Puma? So, <laughs> All credit goes to Dickie Smothers for that. Yep. Uh, so, uh, other thing is, most of the clothing Puma. worn by men in the film does not correspond with period dress. This is especially noticeable when uh, Van Helfen's wearing full front button shirts and Glenn Ford's jean jacket, which has stitching that is clearly post-World War II. I noticed that it took me totally out of the movie. I know. I was like, Jesus. Hope somebody got fired for that. I added that just because it's probably the most douchebaggy commentary <laughs> I have seen yet. Uh, so, 310 to there, Yuma. There are, there are tons of people that love to just search for inaccuracies in movies. And, and, it's, and it's like, just, just shut up. And that's the thing is, period accuracy is definitely not the point in this one. No. no. All I mean, about the story, man. I mean, really I, is. I was a huge fan of the remake when I first saw it. I had never seen the original. I am so glad I went back and watched the original for this show. Uh, this has rocketed to probably top three or four favorite westerns for me. Wow, I'd put it in the top ten. I don't know about top three. Now, is this has this been the first time? Now, Pat, I'm assuming no with you. Is right. this the first I've time seen, any I've of us have seen it? Before. Yeah, Joel, first time. For the original? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh, Not for, for the, the remake. And for the original only for me. Yeah. yeah First time I've cool. seen this also. And spoilers, I loved it. <laughs> this is a great movie. I mean, it, it was a, it was a, it wasn't a period piece. Definitely wasn't. I mean, that it, it was a story set in this timeline. But like you said pre- previously, Josh, with the, um, with, uh, I just lost the writer's name. Elmore Leonard, the you this could easily have been a story set in the 1920s, transporting a prisoner across across the state. You know, this could have been the same thing as, you know, in done now in a modern setting. Yeah, you could take this story and and put it in any time period. It just works really well in a western. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I kind of think that a lot of his post western works kind of have that western ish feel to them. Where you've got these bigger-than-life characters who have to engage in their battle of wills, 
And I don't know. I, I first became aware of him from realizing that the same guy wrote Jackie Brown out of sight and get shorty. Mm -hmm. And then went back and started reading a bunch of his stuff. You know, I've never actually read an Elmore Leonard book. Nor oh, man. Uh, Rum Punch is even better than Jackie Brown. And the Get Shorty book is even better than the movie. Hmm. Plus, I know I've told you guys about Tisha Mingo Blues. Yep. Yeah, you've mentioned that. <clears throat> but um, the kids in this one, they were all right. I normally, <laughs> well, I mean, for, for me, kids in the 50s movies, I think for at least the way I've watched, been watching them, are either... You know, Shirley Temple, incredibly talented, or cringy and annoying. Right. There's like no middle ground. These I, I, I find Shirley Temple cringy and annoying. Well, you got to watch her later stuff, man. When she was a congressman? <laughs> okay, a little earlier than that. Oh. Back up a bit. Too yeah. far. <laughs> yeah. Look up uh, The Bachelor and the Bobby Soxer. That's a kind of a weird. And movie. I thought for her age, though, they had her doing very cutesy stuff. I thought she had a lot of genuine talent, but that is not what we're talking about. This week. <laughs> this I was like, wait, why are we going down this rabbit hole? <laughs> 310 to the good ship lollipop. <laughs> no, the well, the point I was trying to make is that these kids, while they were they weren't like incredible act actors, but they did play their roles very well. This thing is yeah, they don't take you out of the movie just by speaking or existing, which sometimes happens in these older movies. Mm -hmm. Jane! I like the younger one at the, at the dinner table. My dad could shoot you right now. Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and he's sitting there going, shut up, kid. Yeah, shut up. Please, don't, don't go down. No, stop. Don't go down this road. <laughs> no, daddy won't. Thank you. Um, <laughs> but no, it's uh, the, the pacing on this, like I said before, was not too slow at any one given moment. I wasn't like, there wasn't any moment where I was watching the movie and I was like, I wonder why, I, you know, check my phone type of thing. That's kind of like the signal for myself when things are dragging on. Yeah, for sure. That's the, that's the sign of a dragging movie when you start looking at your, your watch. Mm. Yeah. Check your time. Um, I was really happy to see that the initial coach robbery, basically it was completely nonviolent until one dude decided to be a hero. And then the gang leader who is in some ways, while he's the most dangerous, he might be the least prone to sudden bursts of violence. It's like, okay, this guy's trying to be a hero. I have to sh remind these people what I'm all about. Squash mm -hmm. that shit right away. He's yeah. got a reputation to... Yeah, so. first shoot my own guy for being dumb enough to let this asshole take him, and then uh, make it clear, this is the reason you know my name. Right. And he... That, that's what a, guy I was, like, a guy like that knows part of your uh, your word of mouth, your your legend, is spread by your own gang members. Right. And you have to keep them in line. And that's what I think is the the comment, what I had said earlier was he's not violent on you know he he robbed the stagecoach you know he herded the cattle in front of him robbed the stagecoach and nobody would have died if the if the driver hadn't tried something absolutely uh, there was no need for violence to anybody he was very congenial about the whole thing it's like this is how this is going to work there's lots of us with guns so we're taking this mm hmm. And everyone gets to walk away. You guys are going to be out some money, but that's that. That's this is happening. Mm -hmm. Well, and he even explicitly makes the point of saying later on, he's like, you know, you can walk out and leave because I like to do things the easy way. You know? Yeah, that's exactly it. See, he doesn't want to get violent, and nine times out of ten, it's oh, during the end of it, he's not the one getting violent. I mean, he tried to make a run for it once, 
when he was uh, when they was trying to open up the window. When he was reaching over for the stick type yeah, of thing. Yeah, he was just like, hey, I got to try it at least once. Yeah, and that was that was his whole thing. Hey, you know, I got to give it at least one try. Yeah, and he, it was more to catch the measure of the guy holding a gun on him than a serious attempt at escape. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, he, it, it was definitely a half-hearted attempt. Right, because he was so cocky the entire time that he knew he was going to walk away one way or the other. Whether And I think, you know, he, he made the half-hearted attempt because he's like, if this guy is a real badass, I'm not going to get hurt. If I don't do anything, but it's like if I could take him out with a half-hearted attempt, then you know, all the better. And I think he'd been watching him long enough to know that this guy wasn't some a yellow guy that, as soon as he twitched at him, was just going to shoot him dead. Mm-hmm. Right. So yeah, it was a calculated <clears throat> move, and also like his policy of being relatively cool about the whole thing is he knows that once there are bodies, everything gets more serious. You kind of forget that in modern movies where people are just dropping left and right. Like uh, an outlaw who killed somebody, all of a sudden it's a big fucking deal. Yeah, and he would, and he even made that point. You know, he's like that guy drew his gun first. It was self defense. Yep. Yeah. Well, and that. Well, I mean, look at how um how oh crap I'm crossing over movies. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> well, they are very similar. There's, I mean, in in terms of plot beats and and lines also. I mean, that's right. I mean, just one one of the 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 things about Ben Wade is, I mean, he's. He's a hyper-intelligent bad guy, and he loves playing the psychological game because he's better at it than all in, than just about anybody he runs into. And when he, what he finds in uh, in in Dan is basically that he's not going to really get to him, you know, as much as he can anybody else. He's, he still bothers him, but he's not cracking him. Right. Well, and that's one of the things I loved about this version more, uh, a little bit more so than the the remake is that. During the course of their time together, you see that relationship turn into respect. They're not friends necessarily, but they respect each other for different reasons. Well, he he also said he says that in the when they're in the uh, hotel room, he's like, you know, I got nothing against you. I'm just doing this for the money. Yeah, and he says, I know, and I kind of think that the tests that uh, Wade gives to Dan Evans in some ways, as he's tempted and as he's pushed to his limit, uh, Wade in some ways forges him into the man he wants to be. I don't think he's always this guy. I think it's pretty obvious. He's not always this guy. He wasn't even that guy. I mean, you could tell at the dinner table, he's not that guy because you know, he kept trying to get his kids to shut up and they wouldn't, they weren't even listening to him. Right. But in some ways, it's not just, he found something within himself being tested against a man like Ben Wade made him into this man that he always wanted to be. Mm -hmm. Well, and he, that goes all the way back, circles back to the original conversation he was having with his wife after the, you know, initially they got robbed. Well, what, what, what did you do? Well, we just gave him the horses, you know, and you can tell, I mean, he, he, they very briefly talk about it where, you know, I don't know what it is you expect me to do on this. You know, he's, he knows that he should have done something, but at the same time, he has a family, he has a wife, he has two kids that he can't just, you know, react and get shot for. But at the same time, he wants to be seen by his kids and his wife as the protector, as the the head of the family. And because of so many things going on with the, you know, the stream, not uh, him not getting any water, with the drought going on, the guy's just beaten down. 
Well, yeah, and I definitely think there is a big over uh, undertone, and they played it nice and subtle where you could see what was going on through the performances without them having to write lines to tell us what was going on, where his wife doesn't want to come out and say, I'm disappointed that you're not the sort of man who would have done anything, because she knows had he done something, he would have just got shot. Right. But there's still some part there that she's not saying it, but he knows that she's disappointed in him. And they make it a little more obvious in the remake, but yeah, I, I think... And then, and then that scene in the original where she, you know, goes to town and confronts him and is like, you know, basically just apologizing for her behavior over the last whatever, just saying you don't have to prove anything to me. You know, it was a, that was a really good scene, and I, I, I kind of was disappointed they didn't do it in the remake. Well, yeah, because at that point, every single person uh, is giving him a way out, but now he's not doing it for them anymore. He, it's not just, I want to put on this front for my family. It's like, this is something I have to do because this is who I've become now. Well, and he also mentions that also in the, well, that was a terrible sentence. He also <laughs> mentions that after uh, the town drunk gets shot and then hung, holy shit. He's like, the town drunk gave his life for this. He's like, yeah. what am I if I do not follow it through? Right. Yeah, and let's let's just call out the awesome portrayal from Henry Jones. I know that the town drunk is a stock character in early westerns, but this is a particularly good example of him being both the comic relief and like the heart of the movie. He's the, mm -hmm. the Mercutio to to refer to even, Romeo and Juliet. Even more than Dan Evans, he's the everyman because I mean he's the guy that doesn't really want to be doing this, but he you know he, he's doing it because well he's trying he's trying to save his own reputation and he's just trying to do what a man has to do. He doesn't, he's not a badass. He's not anything. He's just, you know, the town drunk. I mean, yeah, everybody knows he's a fuck up and, uh, he's, he's going to take the job. Yeah. And that, that shows forth when he, when he does say, I'll do it. Cause what's the first thing the, uh, you know, anybody else? <laughs> yeah. No, that's no, okay. It, you know, it's okay, Alex, you know, we, we know you want to help, but is there anybody else that can do this seriously? You know, and, in all rights, he does a he does a very serious job of it of patrolling the town. You know, he gets kind of twitchy in the very beginning, and I did like the little exchange between him and the kid with, you know, where's your dad's drink? You know, well, no, I don't know oh. where it is. Oh, your dad said, uh, you know, my dad told me you'd be out looking for it, but you know, so you you. And I also like the line he had at one point where he's like, "This is the first time that I can remember in a long time I don't want to drink." Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I yeah I think they were both transformed for the better. And he decided that, like, this Evans, uh, we came here to do a job, and he's going to get bushwhacked, and I can do something about it, even if it means I get shot. Mm -hmm. So he shouted out the warning. Well, and speaking of something you guys had mentioned earlier about the, the character being not the stock portrayal, um, credit to Elmore Leonard for taking a genre that pretty much had a formula, you know, washer and repeat and turning it into something different that felt fresh and new and still does today so much so that the remake like mike was saying there's a lot of almost identical scenes and script that's used in both and it holds up i mean this is one of the one of the first movies in the in the western genre of the of the 1950s and 60s to actually show that you know that there's it wasn't always glamorous and you know two guys standing off in the middle of the road you know, in a, in a noon showdown or whatever. I mean, they're just, they were just dirty people that would just shoot you in the back, you know? Yeah. And the hero of the movie, you know, honestly does not want to be here. Yeah. 
you know, I'm taking this guy to the to the train to send him out to prison. I don't want to do this, but I have to do this. I, I need this two hundred dollars. <laughs> it's also something you don't see very often uh, in westerns, where basically the bad guy has to be snuck away because the opposition is so overwhelming that they can take out towns if they get mad. Mm-hmm. And I thought the I thought the the whole strategy was pretty uh, was pretty cool. The old switcheroo. Yeah. I mean, real simple, but at the same time, uh, the uh, the gang, Ben Wade, I mean, he explained it later on. He's like, hey, we got a rule. One of us gets captured. One of us goes to every town and just waits. So, yeah, and then the rest of the gang kind of hangs out somewhere where a rider could get to any of them. It's going to take a while, depending on which they go to. But yeah, it wouldn't <clears> have mattered which way you chose to take me. I had a guy waiting. Which had to be so disheartening because they thought they were pulling over this great, you know, caper. And at the end, Al, you know, Ben tells Dan, you know, I, I hate to tell you, this is why I've been so cocky about this. Because he knows no matter where they take him, there's going to be one of his men there. And that just uh, ties in with what we were saying earlier about how intelligent he is. Mm-hmm. I mean, he ben, ahead like that. ben Wade, in, in all honesty, is is a great movie villain. I mean, and he, you know, he doesn't get a whole lot of uh, mention because it's only in, you know, the, the, you know, the one movie. But I mean. I would love to see more of Ben Wade. Well, and that's the thing is he, he doesn't redeem himself in the idea where he like stops robbing, but he decides, you know what? This guy has earned getting to live through this. I'm not going to hang, mm-hmm. but I can, I can uh, pay this guy back for everything he's done when no one else would by not letting my gang shoot him down like a dog. Well, and he also commented after they had gotten on the train at the end, you know, why'd you do that? Well, you saved my life when uh, the brother, uh, what's his name, Bob Moon's brother came in. And what a tried coward to... that guy was. Oh, my God, yeah. Seriously. I bust in here and try and shoot him in cold blood, but as soon as you know anybody else has a gun, like, nah, I'm out. No, I got to go take care of my mom. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, there were so, so Suddenly, many... I don't care about avenging my brother anymore. There were so many guys who were just like, sorry, I got a family. Yeah. And the railroad man is like, uh, I got a family. Dan Evans has a family. And there's this a kind of unspoken Dan Evans has a family and he's a better man than you'll ever be. And you're letting him die, basically. Yeah. Yeah. But all the way down to the, um, the Mr. Butterfield, even at the very end, he's like, I, this is the part that I like when he's, when he's talking to Dan. He's like, Dan, I will not hold you to anything. He's like, this is what we're up against. This is sheer death that we are going to face. He's, and I'll be honest with you, I'm sitting there watching and thinking, I would go ahead and just take that money. I'm like, all right, I'm out of here. <laughs> I probably hold out until he says I'll pay you anyway, but right. then I'm fucking gone. Yeah, I, I'm right there with you. Well, you know, you take the ten from uh, you take the ten from Ben Wade, and then you wait for Butterfield to say, uh, you know, okay, you can go, and you walk out of there with, uh, I guess, ten thousand four hundred dollars, maybe 10, something like that. Something like that. It ain't bad. Good for a couple days' work, but. <laughs> well, back then it was probably closer to like you know one hundred and fifty, two hundred thousand dollars. I'm sure. Yeah, but no, I mean, at the end of this, this is one of those movies that I'd seen and never really under. I don't say I'd understood, but the the plot line never hooked me, and for some reason or another, I never watched it. And I'm again, and this happens a lot with with us in this show is where we wind up watching a movie we know about but never watched, and I'm really glad I watched this. This was a great movie. Well, this, I mean. When you hear the plot description, it's very similar to like you know Saving Private Ryan, where you're. Look- I didn't watch Saving Private Ryan for a long time because I was like, 
oh, a bunch of guys go looking for another you know, another guy in during World War II. Pass. It's, like, it's not until you watch it, you're like, oh, this is so much more than the description. <laughs> right. I mean, because you just read this description, you're like, oh, a, a guy is trying to get a guy on a train past a bunch of bad guys. Okay. Yeah. Been there, done that. Oh, but you haven't. Or has he? Know. Well, I have, but that was a weird time in my life. <laughs> Back when you were a bounty hunter? So, yeah, I'm, um, call, I'm calling break. I, well, real quick, <laughs> I was just looking up the original story on Wiki and trying to see if, if Ben Wade ever was portrayed in any other format. And outside of the short story and the two films, that's all that there is. Yeah, it's a shame. It's interesting. Well, it's a shame, but then again, I mean, do you really do you really need any more? I mean, it would be awesome to see other I'd Ben Wade. I'd like Wade's. to watch a prequel. Yeah, how you know Ben like Wade? Three oh nine to Yuma or something. Oh, Jesus, I was with you <laughs> until then, really. But I get what you're saying, like like another adventure, like what happened after or what happened before. When he was a kid and he was Benji Wade. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody calls me Benji, bitch. Oh. Okay, yeah, we definitely need to go to break. Yeah, yeah, I think so. We're going to break on that note. Ugh. Before it gets any worse, yes. <laughs> okay, that note. It got okay. worse. Yeah. It got See worse. It? This is why you don't argue with me. (laughs) Go to break, Shane. So 310 to Yuma, 2011. Uh, that was 2007. 2007. Yeah. Okay. Uh, remade, same plot. As so often happens with this show, so I'm not going to go over it again. Uh, this one though is directed by James Mangold. Thinking about it, <clears throat> I'm really glad I was already a fan of the ori- of the remake before I ever saw the original. And I say that because now that I've seen the original, I see a lot of the flaws with the remake, where un- they did some unnecessary stuff. It's like, yeah, let's increase the body count by like a hundred times. Mm-hmm. Because modern audiences will not pay attention unless you're killing someone every five minutes. Right. Um, <clears throat> so, James Mangold, director on such movies as Heavy, Walk the Line, and The Wolverine, and was a producer on Logan. So he's got some good credit to his uh, to his skills. <clears throat> he is currently lined up for Ford versus Ferrari, and then. The Untitled Star Wars Boba Fett Project. Nice. Yeah. And after seeing Logan Wolverine walk the line in this, I can say I'm excited for that now. For sure. Supposedly they're kind of putting things on hold for a little bit while they re-kajigga their stuff after Solo, which is unfortunate because Solo was awesome. Yeah, I don't understand all the backlash against that movie. Me either. It's like people were determined they weren't going to like it before it even came out. But that's a whole other show. Yeah, I was going to say, do not set me off on this topic. Did you say re-kajigger? <laughs> yeah, he, could j- he said kajigger. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so this is written by one for the screenplay, Michael Brandt, who is known for The Double and Wanted. But don't let that get to you, because the... Uh, have you guys ever seen The Double? No, but I've no. seen the picture, the poster like a hundred times. Yeah, it's one of those uh, Richard Gere, Topher Grace action flicks. That you've yeah. been asking for. Um, has also wrote, was a writer on Wanted, which I know Patrick loves. Uh. <clears throat> Derek Haas, 
who, believe it or not, is known for The Double and Wanted, <laughs> and Halstead Wells, who we went over before, wrote the original 310 to Yuma. Well, I mentioned this one time long ago, but um, in Hollywood, like it says Halstead Wells and, written out A-N-D, and then Michael Brandt and Derek Haas with an ampersand. Mm-hmm. If you, if you have an ampersand between two writers, that means they're writing partners. So that's why they have the same credits. Oh, okay. Halstead was on his own, and then Brant and Haas wrote together. Neat. Yep. So, uh, cast, <clears throat> Russell Crowe, Ben Wade, Christian Bale as Dan Evans, and then the kids have a uh, little bit larger uh, point in this one. Logan Lerman is William Evans. So you've got uh, the Gladiator, Batman, and um, D'Artagnan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> as the three uh, lead males in this in this movie, <laughs> Dallas Roberts as uh, Grayson Butterfield, Ben Foster as Charlie Prince, uh, also known as Angel from X Three. Yeah. Uh, Peter Fonda as Byron McElroy, Vanessa Shaw as Emma Nelson. <sighs> Some great casting here as Alan Tudyk as Doc Potter. Loose Reigns as Marshall Weathers, and Gretchen Maul as Alice Evans. Yeah, Gretchen Maul really uh, roughed herself up for this role. Yeah, I like her in everything. She's yeah, in. me too. Have you guys ever seen The 13th Floor? Oh, yeah. Yep. I actually have not. Okay, I'll ask for you, Josh. Worth it? Huh? You know, I mean, no, I'm asking for you and I. That's what I meant for these oh, two. Oh, okay. I was like, why are you asking <laughs> I was, me? I was like, why did you pick the one guy who hasn't seen it? <laughs> yes, it's worth it. It's a good flick. Okay. It's not like phenomenal going to change your life but it's yeah. definitely worth watching yeah i wouldn't say don't watch it you know i'm yeah. sure i'm but i'm sure i mean it's one of those where it's like i'm on the line between whether or not it's something that i'm going to really enjoy or something that i'm just going to be like meh it's a better than average sci-fi flick okay cool yeah uh yeah so a lot of characters in this one a lot of a lot of personalities i mean in this one um trivia Exactly ten minutes pass in the movie between the clock striking three and the arrival of the train. Huh. Even though the train's supposed to be late in the movie. Right. So not in this movie. That train runs on time. So also in a deleted scene included on the DVD, Ben Wade tells Byron McElroy, I heard that your boss, Al Pinkerton, got an infection from biting his own tongue and he died last month. Is that true? Uh turns out it is. Alan Pinkerton did die from an infected bite on his tongue on July 1st, 1884, which would then put the events of this movie in August of 1884. Huh. That's crazy. And I have the DVD. It's over on my shelf. Isn't that weird? And the Pinkertons are... And we had a Pinkerton in... Um, uh, Man with the Iron Fist. Did we? I was I thinking more sooner than that. That was in the um, Murder on the Orient Express. Yeah, I mean, they are your stock badass detective agency. Uh, they eventually became the core of the Secret Service. Mm-hmm. So the weekend before shooting was scheduled to wrap, a freak storm dumped nearly two feet of snow on supposedly drought-plagued town. <laughs> uh, the crew shoveled the snow from the building's balconies and roofs and distributed 89 dump trucks worth of dry soil on the ground. Holy crap. Yeah. Backhoes created an eight-foot-tall rampart of snow just beyond camera sight lines for the remaining six days of shooting. Could you imagine that? You wake up in the morning and you're just like, shit. Nope, we're ready to show. Uh, no. 
I'm sure, I'm sure glad we got those 89 dump trucks first full of dry soil sitting off, off camera. Meanwhile, Ben Foster's out making a snowman. Hey, guys. <laughs> uh, one building in contention is called Shiflin's Dance Hall. Ed Shiflin was a prospector who founded the town of Tombstone, which is a neighboring city of where contention once stood. Nice. I love, I love little historical references like that. Just little yeah. Easter eggs like that. Yeah. yeah cool. They're cool. So yeah, we have the same story here, but a little bit more in depth. Christian Bale as Dan Evans is a at the beginning of the movie a war hero. Uh, as far as we know, he lost his foot in the, in the uh, Civil War. Um, a lot more discussion from the North to the South on this one, and uh, I don't know if it was really necessary. I think Josh, this is something that you had mentioned. It, did they really need like Mick Elroy? Did they really need to burn down the barn in the beginning? There's a half an hour of extra film here. Yeah, and I mean, I honestly think they took a look and said, all right, doing a straight remake of the original, completely cerebral, really low action, people aren't going to buy it, it'll flop. And I agree with that decision, but I think they overcorrected by throwing in mine workers and Apaches and a Pinkerton. And, and a freaking chain gun in the first... yeah. I mean, yeah, basically a, a 17th or tank. Right. Yeah. And the body count was just that. And don't get me wrong. I still like this movie, but it has faded from one of uh, probably my top 10 Westerns a little bit in comparison to the original film. When I realized that uh, as strong as the performances are and some good choices they made here, they kind of missed the point with the remake. Well, and what's interesting is that they chose a director who, prior to uh, this, actually, most of his movies were a bit more like Girl Interrupted was not a an action film. It was a, a Copland, even though it's got a lot of action stars in it, was not really an action movie. Heavy was a straight up drama. I mean, he did. He was known for movies that had dialogue and characters, and so yeah. You know what I would really like to see would be. A- Almost a instead of instead of this remake, I would like to see almost a shot for shot remake of the original with this cast. Right. Although you end up losing Tudyk and uh, Peter Fonda, who was awesome. Like well, I loved his Peter character. Fonda's role of Butterfield, I guess. True, but I, I his character and the way they played it were two different things. Like Butterfield in the first one was. A I, lot, I, I'm just. I, yeah. I think I'm just saying that I would really like to watch Russell Crowe and Christian Bale do the scenes that Glenn Ford and, um, uh, oh God, his name, uh, Dan Heflin. Yeah. I would like to see the two of them. Yeah. Act out those scenes, I guess is really my point. And I kind of think James Mangold is capable of letting the audience figure out on his own what Dan's reasons are without him having to spell them out in dialogue. Well, and both actors are more than capable of doing that. Yeah, Mm. absolutely. I mean, pretty much every actor in this would, (laughs) Was capable of that. Yeah, I think, uh, Josh, I know what you're talking about was instead of the annoyances and what we just talked about, like with the relationship between uh, him and his wife in the beginning, in the first movie, I think this may have been a, we said it before, a decision made at a board table. For sure. And there was a bit of modernization of the way the family interacts. Uh, they they felt more like people from the 2000s than people from the Old West, at least the film version of the Old West that we have come to know. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, I just 
I, I know I, I feel like I'm trashing this movie while I still do like it quite a bit, but it was so obvious the unnecessarily inflated body count when comparing it to the relatively violent. Yeah, I mean it's it's a it's a fine modern day western, but it pales in comparison to the original in a lot of ways. However, Ben Foster was a badass. Yeah, I liked his character, and a lot. I would love to see that character like and in something else. We did get to see. Uh, have to be a prequel. <laughs> yeah, we did get to see Ben Wade uh, use his gun. I don't know that they had to go crazy and name it the right hand of God and make it this magical cursed weapon. <laughs> yeah, what right. was with that? that? That never even got addressed. Yeah, yeah that gun is cursed. Oh, cool. Let's hear about. Okay, you're not going to bring it up ever again. Right. But like, as unnecessary as him killing his entire gang was, it was pretty badass. Yeah. Yeah, it was. I mean, it was kind of like that last. Uh, last hurrah to show exactly what um, Dan Evans was dealing with. Well, and and when you rewatch the film, knowing that it puts it into different perspective too, because you realize that at any point during the entire film, he could have walked out of there by shooting the people around him without even blinking or stabbing him in the throat with a fork. What the oh, hell? That was <laughs> yeah. And it was, it was such a sudden, uh, sudden, it was well shot and sudden change. I mean, because, I mean, it, both times I saw this movie, I forgot about that scene, and I, I was just, like, doing, like, what did I, whatever, just kind of watching, and suddenly I'm just like, oh, Jesus! <laughs> like, that, that was abrupt. Which reminds me, you know, let's not try singing and keeping people awake anymore. <laughs> oh, yeah, and that was, we forgot to talk about that guy, because he got cut off of our cast list. Oh. Yeah, but, yeah, you just, you, you don't taunt the badass killer until... He's like, you know, got his head in the noose and they're about to pull the lever. That's the, that's the time to taunt the badass killer. And even then let him swing for a little while, especially if this guy taunt his tombstone. Don't... Yeah. And even then take a couple steps back. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that, that kind of shows him in the very end when, when Ben Wade shoots his entire gang and then walks up to Charlie Prince and shoots him directly in the chest. It was like that moment where you're like, you know, Dan, he was letting you win this whole time. Oh, yeah, for sure. Well, and can we talk about, and I, I don't think we need to call spoilers, even though I'm usually the one that does, but I, and I, I'm curious what you guys think, the very last shot, to me, where he whistles for his horse, was unnecessary. Well, it almost, because they 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 so muddled his motivation towards the end, because they couldn't decide if they wanted, like... It to be like he's finally given up and you know and just saying all right I'm gonna hang everything up and I'm gonna take my my just desserts or whatever and then suddenly they're like oh no I'm gonna bring my horse so I can escape yeah it I mean, negated what just happened with Dan exactly in my opinion exactly I mean because it almost seemed like he was saying by shooting his gang and everything I'm gonna uh, you know I'm gonna give up on this whole thing you know and I'm I'm gonna go take the punishment I deserve you know from for a life of crime. Huh. And then suddenly, you know, when the horse is coming, you're like, oh, no, he's just saying, I'm just going to go get a whole new gang. Well, I think that what he he was turning himself into the law to make sure that everyone saw, even though Dan Evans died, his family gets paid. Right. Uh, and mm-hmm. I, I don't think he ever had any intention of uh, turning himself over because his punishment is hanging. He, he's getting out of Yuma prison. Well, and he yeah. he says that in both episodes, where I mean, both episodes, both both movies. He's like, I've been there before. I've escaped twice. He's like, he's not worried about it. But and and like we said in the first, he's well, we'll see this where this goes. But it almost felt to me like if he would have, if we would have seen him get on the train, sit down, 
you know, give that longing look, the train goes off in the distance and then the theme music starts to play that it would have been like, okay, this man showed me, you know, or showed that he, uh, was a good, honest man who did what kept his word. I'm going to do the same. Even if he got away before he got there, he but at it, least... it, it took it from, I'm sorry to interrupt, but it took it from being an ambiguous ending to very unambiguous. Yeah. It just felt like that would have been his way of saying, I'm going to honor your life by doing what I promised, just like, because you followed through with your promise. And like you said, he's going to get out one way or the other, but we didn't have to see it in the last 30 seconds of the film. Well, and I kind of think, I don't know, because both of them sort of get away. Like he goes to Yuma with Dan Evans in the original. So you kind of get a happy ending and Dan not walking away felt like a truer ending to this movie, but I don't know that it felt like a better ending. It was much more realistic, but yeah, definitely not as uh, uplifting, I guess, for lack of a better word. Well, well the, the other one, it had a, a more late 50s Hollywood ending. Yeah. I mean, it, it, that had the ending of, you know, he, Dan Evans, gets Ben Wade on the train and waves to his wife as they ride by and says, you know, now she, you know, she clutches her, her uh, scarf to her as the rain comes down and all the problems are solved. Well, they sw- they switched out the wife having a bigger role for the son having a bigger role. Which, while I liked Logan Lerman's acting, I think that kind of sucked. After because I, I watched them in the opposite order, I watched the the new one and then I watched the old one. Me too. I I like the old one with the wife coming to reconcile with her husband before she, in her mind he, she's going he's going to die. I got to get out there and I have to close as I can't see him the last, this can't be the last time I see him is before he does something like this and dies. So that's what I, I liked. I, I liked that scene in the original. I wish they'd have kept it for the, the remake. Yeah. Yeah. At the end of the original, they were more like friends almost. Um, and I liked it better that they, they ended being what they began, but there was a respect there. I don't know. They both had problems with the last. And, and that's another thing that I, that I like about the character of Ben Wade is, he is a you know a, a sociopathic killer, but he also has his own set of morals where he's like, I'm not going to, I'm I'm not going to hurt innocent people. It's a, you know my my battles are with the people that fight me and with other evil people. Yeah, although I, I don't know that all of the uh, him deciding that uh, morality is uh, relative was necessary for his character in the remake. Like him going on and on about all the people on the railroads hurt and his childhood. It's like that. That's interesting. I don't know. It's important. Yeah, it was in. I, I agree with you there because in the first one, who is Ben Wade? Ben Wade is this badass outlaw. Okay, that's, that's all. all you need to know yeah, that's it. all you need to know. I mean, you need to, you you get everything you need to know. I mean, from the first one where he walks up, you know, he hustles the cows in front of it, walks up states what's going to happen, shoots his own man because something goes sideways and walks away from it. From that and, one, and like his interaction he had with, uh, with Dan Evans too, where he walks up to him and he's like, we're going to be done here soon. You'll get your cows back. Give me your horses. Nothing bad's going to happen to you or your horses or your cows. Just give me five minutes. Yeah. Give me five minutes. You'll get your horses back. We're just going to leave them up the road. So you don't run off and tell the sheriff now. Not yeah. Gonna and, ki- and I think there's a bit of a disconnect between the fact that they do that pretty much the same way in the remake and then his gang goes off and just is like murdering a bunch of people right 
Like it doesn't seem you can make a case for, okay, that's what they act like when Ben's not around, but well, he even makes a point of saying, you know, they're a bunch of animals. So yeah, I guess that's the direction they were going. I just don't think it's a better one. And it's partially because there are some things I was like, okay, this improved the movie for modern audiences, even if it didn't improve the story they were telling, like the addition of a few more characters, uh, some of the things they did uh, near the beginning, even with some of the Pinkertons, even if they went a little too far, I kind of feel like the addition of the Apaches and the addition of the mining camp and Luke, uh, Luke Wilson really didn't add anything at all. They're just like, okay, we added these extra characters and we need to kill some. It, it muddied the plot to me. It, yep. it, it muddied the character and the relationship in my opinion. Um, and, they added more characters in the gang, but they didn't flush them out. Are they? And, they and what What is with modern westerns always having to have an Indian and or a Mexican in the gang in the evil gang? Like every single one of them almost has that. Well, it's like just like the Burger King Kids Club always has a handicapped kid and an Asian kid. Just like that. <laughs> yeah, that got weird real fast. <laughs> Remember? I do now, and I want to forget. Kids Club. <laughs> Um, and I, I think even if it is historically accurate, as you say, those exact archetypes without any further, it's like, we're throwing them out there and we're not doing anything with them. What is right. your character? Well, I'm the Mexican guy mm-hmm. with the, the really Mexican long guy gun. who does what I, I be the Mexican guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm amazed. I'm, Mex- have, I'm the knife guy, you know? Yeah. I'm Mexican all over this or the native American guy. Okay. Oh. It's that's, like, cool, that's a nationality. That's not a character. Let, let's let him do something. Right. Yeah. Well, I've got the sniper rifle. Is, is there okay. something less offensive we can call him than the Mexican guy? He was probably from Mexico. What's wrong with that? That's an office quote. Thank you. Oh. Yeah. That's what she said. <sighs> and whenever they needed it, there were cattle. To hide in, to rustle, moo ex machina. <laughs> oh, rustle the cattle. Uh, my special skill is cows. That's never going to come into play. Until you have a whole bunch of them that you need to hide in. Ah, GM wrote some cows in. <laughs> Good old well, Charlie I, Prince. And I, I was half hoping that Josh had read this story. I uh, wish I had, but I, I've mostly been working my way through his novels. Just so we could know what the reality is of the story versus the film adaptations. <clears throat> I, I kind of wish I had too. I did read a little bit of it, and it starts out in the hotel room. The, the book does? The story does. It's a short story. The short story starts out in the hotel room with um, Ben Wade being guarded by a, tw- it said something like a 21-year-old um, deputy or something like that. So there's that's, that's what I got from reading the background on it. So it starts out in the hotel room and apparently works backward from there. Huh. Mm. That's cool. That would almost be an interesting way to redo the movie. Okay, so um, here's a question. We've been picking this the remake apart a lot. What do you think the remake did better than the original? Other than um, the oh god, I can't think of his name. The the Charlie Pride. Other than Charlie Pride. Charlie, <laughs> Charlie Pride. <laughs> Charlie I don't remember. <laughs> Never mind. Who are you? I'm the black country singer. What do you do? I'm the black country singer. <laughs> I hang out with the Mexican with the big gun. What are you talking about? It's. Uh, anyway, what do you think it, this this remake did better? I think you got a better desperation for life from Dan Evans in this one than you did in the first one. 
in this one. Yeah, he definitely played him as uh, better as like you know life has beaten him up and kicked him down and. Yeah, I mean honestly, I'm impressed with the uh, the quality of his uh, prosthetic foot for the 1800s. You know that was really for good. Sure. Yeah. Um, I but, didn't necessarily see the the, the need for it, but right. I mean. Well, they had to have that cool scene where he just barely gets shot in the foot because they shoot him in his prosthetic boot. Right. But um, you know, it I I think what I what I liked about this one in the the character arc of Dan Evans is there's no rain, his barn's being burned down, the train is coming in, everything is beating this guy down. The last thing that he's holding on to is that his kids kind of believe that he was that he was in the war before, and it wasn't until the very end you find out that he he didn't lose his foot in some grand battle. He lost his foot in a in a retreat when one of his own men shot it shot it uh, and shot him in the foot. You know he's he's coming to the realization at the very end that he's never been heroic. He's never lived up to this thing that his his family kind of believes. You know they think he's like a guy who used to be a war hero that's down on his luck. It turns out this guy's always been down on his luck. You know, and the desperation that Christian Bale played for this guy, I think really came through. Well, and it gives him more motive to, to do what he's doing. Um, because there's one thing to be a man and keep your word and, and what not, but to redeem yourself for an entire life of failure makes a bit more sense. I'll, t- I'll tell you one thing that I, I thought, thought this movie that. did better was that one line that they had in this one when he's talking to his wife. He says, I'm tired of the way that the, those boys look at me and the way that you don't. Ooh, that was rough. Yeah. yeah. Uh, overall, mm. in general, I would say the casting is either a wash or I give the edge to the original, with the exception of, I think, Gretchen Maul. Even though they modernized her character, she was she's just a stronger actress as Alice than the original. And that's why I wish they'd have, they'd have kept that other scene in. I would have liked to have seen her. Yeah, do a little more. Yeah, do that little monologue. Yeah, I think I think that would have been I think that would have been a lot better that way. I just I while the kid I think they wanted to play up. I don't know. Do you think they wanted to play up the angsty kid side of things to try? You know, we'll hook the youngins. We'll have Logan Lerman being the sassy son who goes off and chases after dad. Until the ending, that kid was pissing me off. (laughs) I I think they were trying too hard to make it like you know a will he won't he thing. Is he gonna you know? flip on his father and, and become a bad guy. You know, they, they were, they were teasing that too much. Thing, they, were, they, they kept trying to show like, you know, he's got a little bit of a wild, bad side to him. Like, you know, the dinner scene, they kept making sure to show that he was smiling at, at Ben or at, um, yeah, at Ben. Yeah. And, you know, and, and I don't know, there were just too many, too many, they, they were trying to create false suspense, which is, you know, as we've discussed in many of my, many of these shows is one of my least favorite things about any kind of media false suspense, you know, you're building up this, you know, will he, won't he thing when everybody knows it's just not going to happen. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Don't do that. Stop it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I But I agree with you. I think the having, having his wife come after him would have been better. Anything else we think was better in the remake? Yeah, uh, they didn't have the theme song. <laughs> uh, I don't know if that's better. Well, I mean, it would not have been palatable to remake the theme song that way. No. Uh, though I do have to say that the music was good. One part in particular that sticks out of my head is at the end when you keep hearing the when uh, Richie Ray Moore does a solo. No, the, the when you keep hearing the train going, choom, choom, yeah, choom. That one, yeah, it was very effective. And it, and it wasn't even music; it was just the the 
background sound of the train that they made go in time with the the beats of the the drama that was playing out. Okay, so what was the reason you guys? What do you think was the reason that he gunned down his entire gang? The actual reason. Um, I think he was angry partially because he was rooting for this guy and didn't get what he wanted. Plus he gave an order to not stop. I think he knew if he gunned down Prince, he had to kill the rest of them. Mm -hmm. I, I think, and that, and it was a, he's going to prison. These guys, he knows these guys are animals and he, if he's in prison for even a little bit, there's nothing going to be controlling them. So it's like almost, I think it was like putting down a dog. And they did have the putting down scene of the cow earlier, so it might have been, you know, a parallel. Shadowing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I, I, I kind of agreed with that. I think I think it was just kind of almost a, I don't know if it was as, it, it might have been something he'd been thinking about the entire time, but I thought it was almost just more of an impulse thing. He, he had grown to like Dan so much that when they shot him down, he just kind of lost his shit. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, he saw something in Dan that was worth preserving, and his men were not. They were kind of the opposite of him. They destroyed him, so he had to even the scales. Yeah, because like I said earlier, I I think Ben had a, a, a strange set of morals where, you know, <clears throat> we don't hurt innocent people. And this guy proved himself to not only be innocent, but, you know, just very fair and, 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 a, and a true man and, and a man of his word. And everybody else buckled under the pressure, and he didn't. So I think he had a lot, I think he did have a lot of respect for him. Uh, just to jump back to the music real quick, the this uh, this was all done by Marco Beltrami. Ah, yes. Yeah, I don't know if you know the name. I do not. Uh, he did the soundtrack from uh, for Hellboy, Blade Two, Resident Evil, Underworld, Triple X, um, Live Free or Die Hard. Did uh, he win an Oscar for the uh, soundtrack? Because I thought this won two Oscars in technical categories. I don't know. Um, Probably got one for cinematography. Yeah, that is something I will say was a lot better. Was the cinematography in this one was? I mean, the the scenes were amazing. And the other one could have been for sound. Right, but um, could have been music. Best original score and best sound mixing. Yeah, okay, it was score. So I I was right on that. Yeah, he and he did the. I mean, if you look at this, look at Marco Beltrami's um, background, his his resume, uh, World War Z, Snowpiercer. Uh, the the V movie or uh, TV show, the remake. Yeah, I mean he he does some great. I, I don't think he gets enough. I mean, like I said, if you um, you talk about the guy, just again lost his name. Indiana Jones, Star Wars. John Williams. John, John Williams. Williams. He, I think he's comparable to John Williams. It's but I think with Marco Beltrami's um, skill, it's the music plays along so well that you don't. It doesn't. It creates a scene, but it doesn't pull you away from it. I just think he just doesn't have, I mean, he didn't luck out and get Star Wars, I think is the problem. Uh, weird side note, because uh, we didn't mention him aside from <clears throat> him getting stabbed in the throat and singing. I was really curious if Kevin Durand had ever played a character that wasn't a total douche nugget. <laughs> I don't think that. Because he is almost always the smarmy military guy or dirty cop or whatever, and I found wasn't that... He, wasn't he one of the cops in, um, in Heat? Yes. Uh, yeah, he was the bad guy in Real Steel. Uh, apparently, like his biggest role where he's not necessarily a douche is in The Strain, which I've never seen, but I think I'm going to now. I don't think he was a douche in Heat. You haven't that seen The Strain? What? The Strain. Good stuff. I have not seen The Strain. 
But yeah, he was a bad guy in Legion. He was a bad guy in uh, X-Men Origins Wolverine. Oh, he wasn't a douche in Robin Hood. He was uh, worked with Russell Crowe. He was Little John in the Russell Crowe Robin Hood. Oh, okay, that's right. Um, the Strain, not to derail us again, a uh, modern vampire story created and told by Guillermo del Toro. Yep. So, good stuff all around, and also has uh, Sean Astin and... Um, Bob. God damn it, what's his name? Anne Canfield. Yes, the caretaker from Harry Potter. Oh, it's also got Corey Stoll in it, the, the bad guy from Ant-Man. Yep, good stuff all around. I like it. I watch it. It's cool. So anyway. Yeah, sorry to derail, but you know, I'm totally going to be watching that now, just uh, out of curiosity and seeing the rare Kevin Durand. At main... least three episodes. Hmm? At least three episodes. Yeah, so at least three episodes before I lose interest and stop watching for no reason. <laughs> <laughs> so, 310 to Yuma 2017. We done? What do you think? I think that's all I have to say about it. Yeah, I agree with that. So, thumbs up, thumbs down. Original. Thumbs up, thumbs down. Uh, it seemed obvious for me that thumb was way up on the original. Holy yeah. crap, this it's was obvious. good. I think it's obvious we're going to have eight thumbs up. Well, yeah, no, you, oh, will. Uh, <laughs> no, you will. I already said I own the new one, and this is the first time I've seen the old one. And as much as we talked about it, yeah, definitely thumbs yeah. up. Yeah, the original, I, I, I'm I, kind of glad that I, wa- I watched it in the order that I did. Because I watched the new one, and then I watched the the original. I think it it allowed me to see things a little bit differently, allowed me to see the characters. I think if I had watched the new one after seeing the original, I don't think I would have enjoyed the new one as much. I completely agree with you. I was a huge fan of the new one, and now I am just a fan of the new one. Mm -hmm. And had I seen them in order that they were produced, I might have given a thumbs down to the new one. Yeah. Yeah. So are we eight thumbs up on this then? Yep. Mm-hmm. I think so. All right, so Joel, next week, what are we doing? We're going to talk about coffee. <laughs> I like coffee. I like coffee. I like coffee. I will have very little to say, but Mike will cover for me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, so if uh, you want to give us a call and tell us uh, why Pat's wrong for not liking coffee, or uh, uh, give us your thoughts on 310 to Yuma, or any other topic we've talked about today, uh Give us a call at 708-NOW-RAP. That's 708-669-9727. Yep. And as we said before, our older stuff on uh, iTunes, Blueberry, Stitcher, TalkShoe, Podverse FM, and NoonFM.com. So you can find us all over the place, Google Podcasts. Um, sometimes you'll find Pat behind your uh, school building just randomly talking. That counts as a podcast. Uh, it's Pat's, trying to drum up business. Yeah, Pat's muttering hour. I'm going to call it Old Man Yells at Clouds. I'm good with it. Run with that. Joel, what about you? You got any new podcasts coming up? Uh, not any ones that you don't already know about. Okay. All right. Well, then we will uh, talk to you next week. Go drink some coffee. Give us a call. Tell us why you do or don't like coffee. Yum. Yeah. Never let me slip, because if I slip, then I'm slipping. That's one of my favorite lines of all time, but that's from the 90s, but whatever. <laughs>